I suggested before lunch that the most conceptually difficult of the six pillars was the fourth, with those two propositions concerning the mystery of providence. And then I offered one implication, um, namely the way in the providence of God, suffering, granted that it is a fallen world, is sometimes used by God to prepare us to help others to bring comfort with the comfort that we ourselves have been comforted with, a very Pauline notion. I would like to take a few moments to tease out some further things that the Bible speaks about that we can conveniently locate under this mystery of providence. Let me run through them fairly quickly. So the first one was this preparation of believers to help others. Second, suffering as a temporal discipline. That is, suffering as part of God's means of disciplining us. Now, again, there are many passages that talk this way, perhaps none more straightforwardly than Hebrews chapter 12, where we're told that every good father disciplines his child, and God, in particular, always disciplines those who love him, so much so that if God doesn't discipline you at some point, The language is very blunt. It says, then you're a bastard. You're an illegitimate child. Because as genuine sons and daughters, they they will be disciplined. God is a good father. That's very strong language. That means that some of the things we face, some of the sufferings we face, are part of God's either rebuke or punishment or toughening us up. And when you start looking for examples in the Bible, they're not hard to find. It's true that on occasion, sickness, for example, may have nothing to do with punishment. For example, in John chapter 9, with respect to the man that's born blind, the disciples haven't got that one figured out yet, and they ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Now, what they were thinking is pretty hard to imagine. This guy sinned, so he was born blind? You can imagine him telling a whole lot of lies in the womb or maybe got punished proactively for what he would. I mean, I don't know what was in their head. It wasn't very clear. But in any case, Jesus says, neither. This is for the glory of God. So not every punishment, not every sickness is directly related to some particular sin. On the other hand, that's chapter 9. Chapter 5 of John's gospel, Jesus heals a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. And after he's healed, Jesus says to him, Go and sin no more. That is along the line that he has been sinning, lest a worse thing happen to you. The ambiguous implication is that this paralysis stemmed from particular sin. Or remember what is said by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There, because of some people's approach to the Lord's table, Paul concludes, this is why some of you are sick. Some of you have actually died. In fact, at the risk of a generalization, I'm not sure this is always true, but there's a lot of biblical evidence for it often being true. And I think there's quite a bit from church history that confirms it as well. By and large, when the church is most holy, there is most temporal discipline. One of the marks that God is abandoning his people in judicial punishment is that there aren't many temporal judgments. 
It's as if God is saying, okay, go ahead and do what you want. Watch what happens. So it's when the church is holy, just the side of Pentecost, that you get the Ananias and Sapphira episode. Now, if God imposed Ananias and Sapphira-type discipline, every time anybody in our churches ever told a lie that boasted about spiritual realities, and thus was a lie against the Holy Spirit, I wonder how many of us would be left next Sunday. But it may, in fact, not be so much a mark of God's goodness to us that we're not being chastened as a mark of God's judgment upon us that we're not being chastened. So this means, therefore, that when we do suffer, we should not automatically assume that we're suffering as a direct consequence of some sin. But we should at least ask the question, is God yelling at us through the megaphone of pain? We should at least ask the question. We shouldn't conclude too quickly and pretend that we're guilty for something that we're not guilty for. Remember Job. But on the other hand, sometimes God is curbing us and clipping our wings and warning us and rebuking us, and never out of malice or because he's some ghastly father who takes some huge, vicious glee out of being a brutal parent who can beat up on us. No, no, no. Hebrews 12 says very emphatically he does this because he's the perfect father, and he does it out of love, and he cares for us, and it's for our good. So that's a second heading under the mystery of providence where we are enabled to think a little more profoundly about what we might be going through. A third, sometimes, granted that this is a fallen and broken world, how we handle suffering, still trusting him, gives us a voice of immense authority in our witness. Do you remember the tsunami a number of years ago? One of the people killed was a young Christian Danish chap and his wife who were there on their honeymoon. He was training for ministry in Denmark. Denmark is an immensely secularized state. His father was a recently retired minister in the Danish cabinet whom everybody knew to be a Christian and thought he was a bit of an odd duck. There aren't many Christians in leadership, genuine believers in leadership in, in Denmark. So he was asked on national television how he was going to justify his belief in God in the light of losing his son and daughter on their honeymoon, of all things, in a tsunami with countless thousands of others. How would he handle that? On a national television, he quietly said, I don't know, except I do know that the God I serve sent his son who died most horribly so that I might be forgiven. And every time they pushed him, he went back to the cross. Every time. And all of Denmark was stilled under the integrity of the man's quiet faith. And then he would add things like, 
And of course, I do know I shall see my son again. It's not a final goodbye. Because the Christ I serve who suffered so much for me rose from the dead. And that was just the beginning of a great resurrection at the end of the age. And so you see, everything they threw at him, he turned around to make Christ-centered, the cross, the resurrection, the final hope. Now, I'm not saying the tsunami was a good thing. I'm not saying the son, the death of the son was a good thing. But nevertheless, in the mystery of God's providence, sometimes God uses these things to enable people to speak with a kind of clarity and credibility to a watching world that they'd never, ever have were it not for those things. And then, sometimes, for those of us who have watched people die, suffering can serve in God's good providence to make us homesick for heaven. You watch people who have had really remarkably good health suddenly be diagnosed with, let's say, a brain tumor, which in all likelihood is going to take you out in two years. And because they've had good health all their lives, they're only 56, and it all seems so unjust, they might fight it tooth and nail, tooth and nail, I will beat this one. They're not yet ready for heaven. Maybe they ought to be. Maybe they ought to be hungry for resurrection existence. Maybe, maybe. But you know what actually prepares them? About a year and a half of suffering. The older you get, the more wrinkles you have, the more replaced joints, the number of bypasses, the onset of senility. Let me tell you, the resurrection body starts looking awfully good. <laughs> you know what I mean? It can be a great mercy to go through just enough that you start thinking in transcendental terms rather than acting as too many of us do, as if this life is all there is. One of the things that suffering does do is free us up a bit to remember that second pillar. That is, there are some implications from the end. If you have had different kinds of deaths in your family, you know that these things come and hit you in different ways. My mother died after years and years of Alzheimer's. Nine years of it. By the end, there was nothing there. Even six months, three months before the end, when she couldn't say anything, when her stare was vacant, if you held her hand and sang an old piece, like, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. You get a little squeeze. Quote King James Version at her. That's what she was brought up in. Get a little squeeze. Hold up the pictures of the grandchildren. She didn't have a clue. But gradually everything goes. It's just gone. And when she dies, 
let me tell you quite frankly, there are not a lot of tears left. The sorrowing has already been done. So in one sense, her long illness, not at all pleasant, actually prepared her family for her going into eternity. By contrast, my father, he started preaching again at the age of 78 or 79 after mom died. And then he went from preaching a sermon to dead in six weeks. Now, in one sense, that was a better way to go from his point of view, I'm sure. It was also harder on the family in a strange way. Less time for goodbyes and the like. Did you, did you know? In the peculiar mix of things under God's sovereignty, in a sense, sometimes these painful things to go through are part of God's preparing either the person or the family for a little bit of homesickness, for the new heaven and the new earth. That's not all bad. Oh, it's, it's, none of it's good. None of it's good. I, I, I know that. This is a sin-cursed world. But granted that, Nevertheless, God and his providence sometimes uses even these things to make us reorientate our visions and hopes and, and, and aspirations and, and, and sense of belonging. And then sometimes these sorts of things also give us occasion to testify to God's goodness before a watching world. Either God's goodness because he has taken us out of them or God's goodness because he's added more grace. So on the one hand, Psalm 40. I suggest when this is over, you go home and read it and reread it. This is where the psalmist said he, that he was in a miry bog. He was in a slimy bog. God took him out and put his feet on a safe place. And, And many shall... See it and be glad. As a consequence, David has a new song in his mouth, a new song in his heart. And and because of this, he says, I will not keep quiet in the congregation. I will talk about it. Do you see? It becomes an occasion for praise to God. On the other hand, in 2 Corinthians 12, there's the apostle Paul with his thorn in the flesh, this messenger from Satan, and he prays earnestly that God will take it away. And God says, nope, not gonna. So he prays some more. Three times, earnestly. And God says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Therefore, Paul says, I will the more readily glorify in my weakness. I will boast in my weakness that the strength of Christ may be manifest in me. Isn't that incredible? Paul has actually got to the place in his suffering where he sees that the weakness God himself in his sovereignty is putting him through may be an advantage so that Paul will learn that God's strength is manifested in our weakness. Do you ever feel every once in a while, do you ever feel every once in a while, regardless of what kind of work you do or what kind of ministry you have in the church, you know, I know that I can do this. I know that I can teach a Sunday school class. I, I know that I'm handling, you know, the old folks' home visitation. I know that I, whatever it is you're doing, I don't really care. But you sometimes think, 
But boy, I'd be a lot better at it if only I, and then you put in some nice thing. Or it could be in a sport, too. I'd be really, really good if I didn't have this, this, this really weak knee. I'd be a lot more effective in my investment business when I made a formal presentation if I didn't have this really ugly mole on my face. If only I were improved in this area, you know. If, if, if I had a really first-class education, I'd be a better preacher. In fact, with my background, not such a hot education after all. I'm, I'm really sorry. I wish I'd had a lot more. It would have made me a lot more effective. Did you ever think like that? You, you, you make up your own example. Don't most of us think like that at some time? As if God weren't in charge. As if God weren't sovereign. As if God didn't know about the bad knee and the mole and the stutter and the education and all the other things. But the fact of the matter is not 2 Corinthians 12, Paul understands. He learns. He learns that when he is given wonderful, spectacularly great revelations that others haven't had, it's a mark of the grace of God in his life that God has also given sufferings that others haven't had. Because otherwise, he said, I, I would be tempted to be really, really arrogant. It's to keep me, he says, from from arrogance because of the things I have received. He wants to make sure that nobody will think more of him than measuring him by what he says and does. Do you hear that? Most of us go through life fearing that people will not think enough of us. Paul goes through life fearing that people will think too much. If he's got to be assessed at all, let them assess him not by some secret revelation that he's had or some esoteric claim to another Damascus Road experience. Let them assess him just by what he does in the public arena, what he says and does. And meanwhile, if God gives him this thorn in the flesh, this messenger from Satan, well, I will glory in it, he says, because I learn thereby that God's strength is perfected in my weakness. Which means somewhere along the line, you got to glory in your molds. You've got to glory in your awkwardness and the wrinkles and all the rest because that's the context in which God uses you. And if you were so stunningly beautiful, so magnificently a hunk, all your hair after all, and built, and swift with your tongue, and bright, and a first-class educator, and really good with your hands, and charm coming out your little fingers, and, and, and such, such a gift of the gab, and, and, and so persuasive in all of your work, and, and rich, so that you can be generous and don't have to depend on anybody, and a really excellent Bible teacher, and really, really good with young people, on and on and on and on. What sort of arrogant son of a gun would you be? No, 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 no. God is so wise. This is a fallen and broken world. We're looking for all the wrong things. And the mystery of God's providence, even in those things that we go through with life, they are all part of teaching us a certain kind of dependence on grace. So, so that we learn to be grateful for the things God has given us and learn to be grateful for the weaknesses we have too because 
Because God delights in doing things through us when we're not all that bright and not all that clever and not all that powerful, not all that good-looking and not all that intelligent. Then He does things through us in any case because God will not give His glory to anybody. So that whether in the case of a David in Psalm 40 where God does take him out of the muck and plants his feet on a rock or in the case of a Paul in 2 Corinthians where God doesn't take him out of the muck but just adds more grace. In both cases, it becomes a reason for public testimony to the grace of God, the sustaining strength of God, the goodness of God in our lives, which we would not be able to articulate if we were so full of confidence and smoothness and giddy success all the time that we thought somehow we had all of life nicely tapped, thank you, it would merely become an excuse for one more round of idolatry. Well, much more could be said. I'll let that pass. The mystery of providence. Number five, insights from the centrality of the incarnation and the cross. Insights from the centrality of the incarnation and the cross, and I include here the cross, the resurrection, all that flows from it. I wish we had the time to go through passage after passage where biblical texts speak of the person and work of Christ. When I was a boy, we sang, What grace is this that brought my Savior down, that made him stoop to leave his throne and crown? The one who made the stars, the sea, the one who threw out every galaxy. What condescension? Oh, how can it be? What pain he suffered and what agony. When on the cross he died for sinners crucified. What grace is this? What grace is this? The Word became flesh and tabernacled for a while among us. God making himself present among us. And then after this long section in Romans 3, 18 to 118 to 320 that talks about sinfulness, one of the great atonement passages in the New Testament, Romans 3, 21 to 26, the passage that Luther called the central point of the epistle to the Romans and of the whole Bible. Work your way carefully through Romans 3, 21 to 26. I, I wish I had time to expound that for about an hour and a half. Where the whole point is that God presented Christ as the propitiation, the sacrifice that turns God's wrath away from us so that God could simultaneously be just and the one who justifies us. The trouble is that sentence is so rich and so full of God talk and theological vocabulary that that we hear the words and recognize that they're sort of pious and they wash over us, but they don't, they don't mean a lot. Let me just unpack that a little bit. 
do you know the difference between propitiation and expiation? Yes? No? Not sure? A few confident yeses. A lot of blank stares. It's after lunch, Don. What do you expect? <laughs> let, let me unpack the difference between expiation and propitiation. It's very important. In expiation, God cancels sin. The object of expiation is sin. God expiates sin. He cancels sin. In propitiation, well, that's tricky. In the pagan world, where you have lots and lots of gods and godlets, then the idea is that the sacrificer propitiates one of these gods in order to get their favor. That is, the effort is to make the gods propitious, favorable. It's an effort to make the gods smile on us. Pagan religion is a tit-for-tat religion. I scratch my back, you scratch your back. I scratch your back, you scratch my back. Do you see? So you want to make a sea voyage? You go and offer up a sacrifice to the god of the sea, Neptune, in the hope that the god of the sea will smile on you and give you a safe passage to Tarshish. Did you see? That's what you do. If you're going to give a speech, then you offer a nice sacrifice to the god of communication, Hermes in the Greek world, Mercury in the Latin world, because you want the god of communication to bless you in your endeavor. You try to propitiate the god, do you see? To make the god favorable. But how can you speak of God presenting Christ to be a propitiation? That was a question that was raised by a very pious liberal in the 1930s in Britain. His name was C.H. Dodd. He said, listen, read the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave a son. If God already loves the world so much that he gave a son, how can the giving of the son make God propitious? He's already so favorable that he gives the son. How can the death of the son then make God favorable? How can you do that? He's already favorable. And therefore, the word that is found in our Bibles today in Romans 3, 24 and 25, propitiation, he says it can't be propitiation, it must be expiation. There's no sense in which Christ's crossword propitiates God because, after all, God is already so propitious already that he gave his son. However, in that case, what do you do with the fact that the previous two and a half chapters have all talked about the wrath of God? The God who loves the world so much he sends his son is also the God described in these chapters as the God who stands over against us in wrath. God reveals his wrath from heaven against all wickedness of wicked people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What do you do with that? And so this produced a long debate that went on actually for decades. For those of you who read theology books, one of the more important contributions in 1960s was by an Australian called Leon Morris who wrote a book, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, still worth selling your shirt for and buying. A more recent book edited by Mike Ovey and friends, Pierced for Our Transgressions, still worth reading and buying. What they pointed out was how regularly this notion of propitiation, that is the word that's used, is found in contexts that speak of God's wrath. For the fact of the matter is that biblically speaking, God stands over against us in wrath because he is holy. 
Hence the 600 times that the Bible speaks of the wrath of God. Hence everything that flows out of Genesis 3 in the first pillar. God does stand over against us in wrath. He would not be a nicer or better or superior God if he really said to all sinners everywhere, starting with me and ending up with Hitler or anywhere else in between, um, I don't really care what you do. You know, I'm a nice sort of gaudy, so I, I, will, I will just smile and it, w- it won't matter. In fact, he's a holy God, and it does matter. And he does care when his name is besmirched. He stands over against us in wrath, but he stands over against us in love. He's the God who cries, turn, turn, why will you die? The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's he's the God who cries, turn, turn, be saved, you ends of the earth. He's the God of whom it is said, God so loved the world that he gave his son. He stands against us in wrath because we are sinners. He stands over against us in love because he's that kind of God. And although his invitation is to all, he stands in a peculiar relationship of love to those whom he draws to himself by the power of his spirit. Not because we're any better than anybody else. But he is that kind of God. So so that when you read these verses in Romans 3, you're supposed to see God stands against us in wrath from the previous three chapters, and now God sets forth his son to be the propitiating sacrifice, the one who by his death, by taking our sin and our guilt upon himself, turns aside the Father's righteous wrath so that God can be seen to be just while justifying the ungodly. So that God can be just, vindicated, while justifying the ungodly. I'll tell you one of the reasons why this is a little hard for us to see sometimes. Have you ever used the uh, illustration when you've been explaining substitutionary atonement to your friends? Have you ever used this explanation? It's a bit like a judge who pronounces sentence on some nasty piece of work, and um, it might be five years in prison or a fine of 50000 or what, whatever. He pronounces, he pronounces the verdict and sentences the bloke. And then he steps off the bench, takes off his robes and goes down and goes to prison himself or pays the fine himself. It's that kind of substitution. Have you ever used that, that, that kind of illustration? In one sense, that illustration is good. It shows something of the substitution that takes place. Instead of that person bearing the sin and the blame, never, the, the judge himself takes it. But, but you know why it rings so false in our ears, this illustration? Because in our ears, the judge is the administrator of a larger system. The judge is never the offended party. If a mugger mugs a judge... The judge is supposed to recuse himself or herself from the case because because legally the mugger has offended against the state or against the laws of the land or in a monarchy against the crown or against parliament or against Congress or against something, but not against the judge. The judge is merely the administrator of a larger system. Do you see? So much so that if the judge is the victim, then the judge is supposed to recuse himself. 
So therefore, a judge in our system doesn't have the right to get off the bench and pay the penalty. That would be unjust. He doesn't have the right. He owes it to the system to be fair, to be just. He owes it to the laws of the land. He owes it to the court. He owes, he owes it as a matter of principle to, 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 ad, to administer justice fairly. He doesn't have the right to take the other person's place. Do you see? But with God, he is always the offended party. He is the judge. And he never recuses himself. Never. And he doesn't have to in order to preserve justice because his justice is perfect even though he is the offended party. So he is the offended party. And in perfect sovereign freedom, he can step off that bench if he wants to. So long as he maintains justice. So long as payment is made. So long as the penalty is paid. And he pays it himself. That's why Christians have called the cross, amongst other things, it's a lot of things, but amongst them, at the very heart, is it's a penal substitutionary sacrifice. It's substitutionary in that Christ takes my place. It's penal in that what he is doing is paying off my penalty. He's paying off the punishment that I should receive. It's a penal substitutionary sacrifice. Now, it can be configured in a lot of different ways. A lot of different ways of thinking of the cross are presented in the New Testament, but that one lies at the heart of absolutely everything in the New Testament. And C.H. Dodd so hated penal substitution as a notion. He hated it that he fought it all his life. And when he was involved as the senior editor of the Bible translation, the New English Bible, he came to this passage and he was heard in the senior committee as he and his committee people were working through Romans 3, 21 and 26. He was heard muttering under his breath as he worked through the Greek text, what rubbish. Whereupon one of his colleagues of more orthodox temperament wrote a limerick. There was a professor called Dodd whose name was exceedingly odd. He spelled, if you please, his name with three Ds, while one is sufficient for God. <laughs> that is a quintessentially British way of handling theological controversy. <laughs> it has nothing to do with anything, but it is a spectacularly good put-down. Now, in Romans 3, Paul will not let us get away with things. Christ is the one whom God has presented as the propitiating sacrifice so that God can simultaneously be vindicated, just in all of his decisions, and the one who justifies, who declares not guilty, who declares just those who put their faith in him. Now then, what's that got to do with theodicy? What's that got to do with all of our talk about suffering? Many, many, many things. Don't you see, theologically, all of our suffering, theologically, all of it comes directly or indirectly from the fall. All the way through to hell itself. 
There is a sense in which some temporal suffering here, whether war or disaster or the like, is already, biblically speaking, a kind of pre-configuration of the ultimate suffering. And Christ comes and takes the ultimate suffering of his people. He takes our penalty. So he's not just a God who stands back and looks in magnificent detachment at all those poor, hopeless little rebels down there. He comes and takes the supreme curse upon himself. And that changes everything you think about God. You see, if you start arguing with some voices in our age, I just want God to be fair. Where does that end? Perfect fairness will see us all consigned to the pit. Do you really want God to be fair? The Bible speaks of God's mercy as well as God's wrath. The Bible doesn't picture God merely as a distant judge, a deist figure who stands in great distance from us and occasionally declares his fatwa. No, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. The word became flesh and lived for a while among us. Yes, he's the son of David. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, but he will also be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. So the Christians who are thoughtful can never think of their sufferings apart from Christ's sufferings as he faces in his own limitless person the judicial wrath of his Father that his own people might go free. I know a family where when the daughter was about 15 years old, she lost her very best friend to leukemia. The friend who died was a strapping blonde of almost six feet, healthy, vigorous, athletic, bright. From diagnosis to death, despite the very best efforts of very good medical care, Six months. And this family that I know, their daughter, again, 14, just turned 15 that summer. It was a Christian family. They talked about these things. They prayed about these things. They, they, they grieved over these things. They, they tried to work them through. It wasn't suppressed or anything like that. But in September, the father went by his daughter's room and heard her crying quietly inside in the bedroom. And he tapped on the door, went in. He put his arms around her as she quietly wept. And he said, come on, tell me about it. And she said, Daddy, God could have saved my best friend, and he didn't. And I hate him and burst into tears. The father said, you know, I'm so glad you've told me this 
No point hiding it in any case. God knows what you think. He knows your thoughts before you actually think them yourself. Might as well be honest before him. No point pretending. I'm glad you felt free enough to tell me. But before you decide that God is a miserable wretch, I want you to think two things. Number one, do you really want a God like the genie in Aladdin's lamp? Remember the genie in Aladdin's lamp can do absolutely anything, perform any miracle, but is always under the control of whoever holds and rubs the lamp. Do you want a God like that? So the God can do absolutely anything, but always at your beck and call, in which case, who is God? Do you really want a God like that? Are you wiser than God to tell him what he should and shouldn't do? You're really back to the mystery of providence and to innocent suffering. You see, you're back to Job and Habakkuk and the mystery of providence, aren't you? But he says, the other thing is this. Before you decide that God doesn't love you, you've got to face the fact that in the Bible, God's love is measured by a little hill outside Jerusalem. God's love is measured by a little hill outside Jerusalem. And when nothing else seems fair, nothing else seems right, and when the pain is unbearable, yes, you remember that you lost your friend, but don't you dare forget that God lost his son. In fact, he didn't lose him. He gave him. And when you can't put it all together, at least fasten on that because nothing else will stabilize you. That little girl, you see, is my daughter. So that after you've finished all of your theological explanations, you still have to come back to the basics of elementary Christian confessionalism. Christ died for sinners, of whom I am chief. God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He who has not withheld his own son, but freely given him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Do you see? And you're into the closing verses of Romans 8. All because of the cross. What else can ever finally sustain you? Final pillar. Insights from what it means to take up our cross. Insights from what it means to take up our cross and thus from the persecuted global church. Insights from what it means to take up our cross and thus from the persecuted global church. Do you remember the spectacular scene in Matthew 16 in Parallels where Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? 
Some say this, some say that. What do you say? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus blesses him for it. Yeah, yeah, you're blessed, Peter, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, that's all wonderful, but you've got to understand that when Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, by Christ, he did not mean exactly what you and I mean. Because when you and I refer to Jesus as the Christ, inevitably we think of him as the Christ of the whole New Testament, including his death, burial, resurrection, ascension to the right hand, his impending return and all the rest, don't we? We, we, we can't think of an uncrucified Christ. But when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, he still doesn't have a category for a crucified Messiah. You read the following verses and it becomes very clear. He still doesn't have that category. He's got it right and he is blessed of God that he really does understand that Jesus is the Messiah when a lot of people haven't even got that far. But on the other hand, he does not see the Christ as the crucified Messiah, does he? So much so that when Jesus then goes on right after this confession in Matthew 16, 20 and following to start speaking then about how the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and be persecuted and be be put to death and on the third day rise again, Peter takes Jesus aside and says, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. You know, Messiahs win, especially ones that can do miracles the way you can do miracles. That's pretty hot stuff, you know. How's anybody going to stand over against you? Messiahs win. On this one, Jesus, you've got it wrong. Messiahs don't die. They win. So Jesus turns to him and says, Get behind me, Satan. You do not understand the things of God. And then Jesus goes on to talk about how we must take up our crosses and follow him. That's the remarkable connection. Same connection is made in Mark chapter 8. Now, when we today speak of taking up our cross... Sometimes we meet it in an almost flip way, you know. Really wretched toothache. It's been bothering me all weekend. But, you know, we all have our crosses to bear. You should see my mother-in-law. But we've all got our crosses to bear. My kid has just turned 15. Boy, have we got our crosses to bear. Or whatever it is. We We have these expressions, don't we? Maybe not very fair and sometimes not very polite. And in any case, a long way removed from the New Testament. In the New Testament, nobody made jokes like that. Nobody made jokes like that. Because the Romans, you see, had three methods of execution. Crucifixion, the cross, was the worst of them. It was only for scumbags and slimeballs. It was for slaves and non-citizens. Only the emperor himself could ever sanction crucifixion being imposed on a citizen. And it was filled with shame and pain, both. You were crucified naked in a public place. It could take days for you to die. And all of the ancient literature pictures, pictures philosophers and teachers and parents saying, you know, if there's a crucifixion site nearby, make sure you walk around it so your children don't see it. Never talk about the cross. Never talk about crucifixion in the home. It's a, it's a, it's a horrible subject. You, you never talk about it. This is not a, a, a subject for fit to conversation. It, it's, it's always filled with shame. It's a bit like trying to make jokes in our society, society about Auschwitz. There are some things you don't joke about. Auschwitz is one of them. In the ancient world, there were some things you don't joke about. Crucifixion was one of them. And so we make jokes about, oh, we've all got our crosses to bear. Yuck, 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 yuck. 
No, when you took up your cross in the ancient world, it was the cross bar. After sentence had been passed, after you'd been whipped and beaten one more time, you were supposed to take up the cross bar to the place of execution where the upright was already in the ground, and there you were stretched out on the cross, and there you were attached to it, and then the whole thing was hoisted up, and there you died. So when you took up your cross, you were really dying to yourself. There was nothing more to live for. You had only pain and shame left. That was it. And now Jesus comes along and says... Unless you take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciples. Talk about seeker sensitive. (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it? Elsewhere, he says, unless you take up your cross daily, how would you like to be crucified every day? That's what Paul says, I die daily. Now, obviously, most of us aren't called to to, to die daily in that sense, in some literal sense. And yet there is something to it, isn't there? A desire to follow Jesus, if he was crucified, I'm not better than my master, then maybe I need to be crucified too. Isn't that what Jesus argues at a lower level in, in a passage like John 16? You know, if the world doesn't like me, then it won't like you. If they despise me, don't be too surprised if they despise you. Servant is not better than his master. And then you watch what happens to the first apostles, the first apostles facing the first whiff of persecution, the first time they're beaten up. Do you remember what the text says of them? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. I finally made it. (laughs) Isn't that terrific? I finally made it into the realm of the persecuted. And it's not just Acts. It's everywhere in the New Testament. Do you remember... Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. It has been granted to you, Paul writes grandiloquently, it has been granted to you not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. It's been granted. It's a grace word. It's, it's your great privilege to have come to faith. It's your great privilege to have come to suffering for his sake. Isn't that what Jesus says in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who, 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 who persecute you for my sake and for the Gospels. Isn't that what you find in Philippians 3.10? Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And let's be quite frank. Most of us know those verses if we've been Christians for a while, but we're quietly grateful that it happens to Christians in Iran but not here. Thank you. And what I suggest to you is that most of the passages that actually talk about suffering in the New Testament, not all, but most of them in the New Testament that talk about suffering, actually have to do with suffering for righteousness, with persecution. Reread 1 Peter. Oh, there's some overtones of other kinds of suffering, whether you're suffering justly or unjustly and so on. But even if you're suffering unjustly, then you put a stamp on it that makes sure that makes sure that you yourself are righteous in it without retaliating because we serve a master who didn't retaliate. And everything becomes part of the pattern of taking up our cross in some essentially minor way compared with Christ who did take up his cross and die on our behalf. And then suddenly you begin to realize that in the matrix of living and serving and dying in a sin-cursed world, then if some of your friends mock you at work, 
or actually kick you out of the home. I had a Jewish friend at university when I was a young man, an Orthodox Jew. When he became a Christian, his parents actually held a funeral for him. Or if I could introduce you to Christians I have known in various parts of the world, a big part of my job is to be in very many different countries. Do you realize there have been something like 9,000 martyrs in Indonesia in the last six years? Not fewer than 2 million martyrs in the last 20 years worldwide. Not fewer. More Christian martyrs in the last 150 years than in the previous 1,800 years combined. That's martyrs. That's quite apart from those who have just been beaten up or have suffered, or lost property, or just have been laughed at and marginalized. Where then will the church stand in the West when it faces these things to stand up and rejoice that at last it's counted worthy to suffer for the name? It has been granted to the church this privilege. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not for masochism. Go ahead, hit me again. I love the pain. I love the pain. That's not the idea. And it may be that there are times when God gives us remarkable freedom that we are to enjoy. That's true too. But there is also a wonderful privilege in taking up our cross and dying to self-interest and recognizing that it is a grace gift to suffer for the name. I grew up in a home in French Canada where Baptist ministers alone spent eight years in jail between 1950 and 52. We kids used to get beaten up fairly regularly because we were maudit protestant. Oh, it's changed there now. That was part of the heritage, though. And it changes the way you look at reality. So now it's important not only to read older books, older books that many of us of another generation used to read all the time, Fox's Book of Martyrs, Nowadays, it's important to read the up-to-date ones, like the one by Don Cormack on the killing fields of Cambodia. That's must-reading. That's must-reading to understand that in this generation, too, God has raised up another generation of men and women who love the cross. Not only the cross of Christ, but in some measure, the cross we are called to lift up and bear. Now let me conclude. I want to conclude with four practical reflections. I'll go through them very quickly. Number one, I want to reiterate what I said at the beginning. This approach is not a simple proof-texting approach, a couple of quick verses to answer all questions. A verse a day keeps the devil away. What this is attempting to do is establish a Christian, biblically faithful worldview. And it can be thoughtfully assessed, as it were, only by comparing it with other competing worldviews and checking out everything by Scripture and bringing everything to the centrality of the cross and resurrection. All six of these pillars stand or fall together. And if you hold them with a passion, if you understand them and hold them with a passion, then when the deepest struggles come, 
your faith will be much more informed. Your confidence in Christ will be much more secure. You will be far more stable even as you cry out in the agony and the loneliness. Number two. I have focused, in essence, on theology. That is what the Bible actually says put into some sort of systematic guise. That's what I've been doing. But I would be the first to insist that when people are actually going through the worst actual crises, something rather different may be needed first. In a really large-scale crisis, helicopters, food supplies, fresh water, blankets, housing, security, getting rid of the dead bodies, rebuilding, police, But even then, to be able to do all of this in the name of Christ, because we are not interested in relieving only suffering at the end. That's hell by the preaching of the gospel. Nor only suffering right now. That's emergency relief. Precisely because we have an organic view of all of history, we see that all of the suffering is in one sense of a peace. We're interested in relieving all suffering all the way through to the suffering of hell which is why we do good and proclaim the gospel. We still remember that we are exhorted in the parable of the Good Samaritan to do good, do good to all, and especially those of the household of faith. Galatians 6 says, there is an entailment in loving your neighbor as yourself. And yet, because we put it in the Bible's framework of a huge storyline that takes us from creation all the way into eternity, when we speak of relieving suffering. We don't think that we have done our job after we've written a check for UNICEF or even after we've spent a year or two in the Peace Corps. We see that at the end of the day, we want to help men and women made in the image of God because they are made in the image of God and they are destined for eternity. And we cannot readily separate the relief of suffering now from the ultimate relief of suffering. It's all of a piece until finally the only thing that finally relieves suffering is the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. We proclaim Christ crucified. Number three, what sort of comfort then can one give to those who suffer who are not Christians? One can often give all kinds of practical helps and show affection and kindness. But never, ever, ever give false comfort. Dealing with a first-class reprobate who's dying, for whom you have no confidence that they know Christ in any sense. How dare you pat them on the shoulder and say, your suffering will soon be over. No, there is a sense in which again and again and again, even though in the height of the crisis we may not be able to unpack the whole storyline, we still have to present Christ and Him crucified again and again and again and again. Not out of arrogance or condescension, but as poor beggars telling other poor beggars where there is bread, people who have known and tasted of the grace of God showing other men and women where the cross stands. And finally, 
Christians who get to know God well and sense his comfort by the Spirit poured out upon us in the wake of the cross and resurrection. Do not, as a rule, think very commonly in terms of theodicy, that is, how to explain suffering. Christians who get to know God well do not think often in those terms, but in two others. First, there is a wonderful example from Nehemiah 8 and 9. There Nehemiah and the other leaders, the priests, lead the people in prayers of confession. The whole point of that chapter is as they look through their sufferings, they acknowledge that the sufferings that have come upon them have come upon them because of the sin and rebellion and idolatry that they and their fathers and their forefathers have demonstrated generation after generation. So so that when they see themselves pushed to the very end, their question is not, How can you do this to us, God? Their question is rather, O Lord God, in the midst of our suffering and need, our deserved suffering and need, will you not again show mercy on us because you are a compassionate God? Biblically and historically, when there are times of genuine reformation and revival, you do not have many Christians writing books on theodicy, that is, books about suffering and how to think it through. What you have instead are books of confession. One of the scariest things of our age is how many books are out there trying to defend God I know it has to be done. I'm doing it today, for goodness sake. But there is a sense in which if the church of Jesus Christ were right on the portals of reformation and revival, we wouldn't gather so much to hear three hours or four hours on how to justify the way of God to human beings. We would be gathering rather for confession and repentance. It is a standard pattern in Scripture. Reread Nehemiah 8 and 9. And finally, a correlative of this, when Christians begin to understand this well, I think, they are much more inclined to speak of the goodness of God. I want to tell you about another chap. I won't hurt to tell you his real name. I don't th- I'll, I'll, I'll put in another name. We'll call him Greg. Greg went out as a single missionary to Bolivia quite a number of years ago. Single. About 6'4", lanky as a beanpole, to Bolivia, which has a lot of very short people. But he learned the language well, and the mission liked his work, and eventually the mission sent him to Trinity, where I teach, to do a PhD so that he could go back to Bolivia to upgrade the theological education that was going on there. You see? So he arrived. When he arrived, he actually brought his, his, his wife with him. He had married a single missionary out there. A man had gone out. A woman had gone out. They had met out there. They got married out there. A little later in life, they had one little girl who was then three, not quite four. And they brought her back to Trinity so he could do his three years to do his PhD with us. About six months into the program... His wife, who was 40-ish, something like that, 
was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer. Stage 4 is almost always a death sentence. It's only a question of time. Usually, there are some exceptions, but that's very high risk. She fought it with all of the chemo and the radiation and all the rest. She got back on her feet more or less. He took a hiatus from his studies during this time as he nursed her and looked after the little girl and so on. She was coming back on track. He started studying again. He got so far and he was diagnosed with advanced stomach cancer. Chicago has a lot of very good cancer hospitals, especially the Lutheran General. They wouldn't touch him. They looked at it and said, this is a death sentence. But the mission liked him so much, they paid to send him up to the Mayo Clinic. And they said, there is really nothing for this. The only thing we can recommend is take out virtually all your stomach. And we're willing to try experimentally, if you want to go through it, drugs that have been developed recently for colon cancer and things like that. We're not sure they're going to work. They took out 90% of his stomach, started him on all of these drugs. The cancer, so far as we could tell, disappeared. Lanky beanpole became skinny as a rake beanpole as he had to eat every two or three hours. Just little bits of food because since he didn't have a stomach that was big enough to hold anything. And after another six or eight months, he came back to Trinity. Started working on his PhD. Got through the comps. Started working on his dissertation. And his wife's cancer came back. And she died. He was surrounded by lovely families, the seminary community, churches. But nevertheless, he just lost his wife and now his little daughter was about seven or something like that, eight. He finished up his dissertation and about three years ago, three and a half years ago, he came back to our church. Our church was one of the supporting churches. On his way back to Bolivia with his little daughter, then age nine, He's going back to Bolivia. Single father. And do you know what he preached on? For 40 minutes? The sheer overwhelming goodness of God. And I tell you, that is normal Christianity. Let us pray. So fill our vision and our understanding, we beseech you, with a sheer horror of sin and its guilt and entailments. Fill our vision far more comprehensively with the glory of Christ Jesus, his perfections and his wisdom, his suffering on our behalf, his promised coming, the ultimate kingdom, the consummation of a new heaven and a new earth, a home of righteousness toward which we press. Bring us back again and again to the cross. Help us to be willing to recognize our own 
blindness, our own myopia, our own smallness of understanding, so that even when we understand so little, we will understand, we will see, we will believe that you are great and sovereign and good and trustworthy. All of this, Heavenly Father, for the glory of your dear Son and for the good of the people for whom he shed his life's blood. In Jesus' name, amen.